As software engineering gets more popular, the resources that we use to read and understand software are growing and improving. Scale Your Code is an organization that seeks to improve accessibility to the world's programming knowledge. And today's guest, Christoph Limpelaer, joins me to discuss Scale Your Code, which he built. Christoph is a podcaster and blogger who runs the popular Scale Your Code podcast and website. Before we get to that episode, a few things. Software Weekly is a newsletter that we put out every Sunday evening to condense what happened in the world of software over the previous week. You can sign up for Software Weekly or join our Slack community at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Also, Software Engineering Daily is looking for sponsors. So whether you're interested in advertising your product on the show or talking about hiring engineers on the show, send me a message at softwareengineeringdaily at gmail.com and we can talk about it. Christoph Limpelaer is the founder of Scale Your Code, an organization working to organize and improve accessibility to the world's programming knowledge. Christoph, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. What is your mission with Scale Your Code? My mission is really just to, to make accessible a lot of the knowledge that would be really hard to have otherwise. So you've got really smart people working on very interesting challenges. But a lot of times they're really busy working on those platforms, so they don't really have the time to blog about it or just to jump in chats like on Slack or on Twitter and just to mention what they're talking about. But I noticed that people were really eager to do podcasts or to go on podcasts and to talk about that. So I thought, well, maybe we can get a lot of information out of really smart people and learn from them if we can open up that communication channel and we could make it free. Uh, so, so that's really my mission with Scale Code is just to, to provide a lot of really good content for free for anyone around the world to be able to access it. What was going on in your life when you started doing this? Give me the context. Great question. I was actually in school. I was trying to get my degree and I had about, uh, I had about a year left of studies. And maybe a few months before that year, I was just uh, listening to a podcast called Mixergy, which is a business podcast. And I just, I would commute from my house to, to school and it was about a 30 minute commute. So, in, and I went there pretty much every day of the week, except on weekends. So it was about an hour worth of podcasting every single day of the week. And I just, I loved it. I learned so much about business. I love the Mixergy show. And I just remember thinking there aren't really that many shows that talk about scaling code or talking about code performance or large scale systems or anything like that or at least I didn't know of any. And so I just thought, man, this, this could be a really good opportunity to not only learn more, learn things that I'm not learning in school, but also just to learn so many interesting, or just to, sorry, just to meet so many interesting people. And uh, so I just, I started Scully Code basically just like that. And uh, it, it's been an amazing experience. I've loved it ever since. I can certainly relate to the desire to meet interesting people. And fi I'm finding that myself with Software Engineering Daily. So we usually talk about scaling databases or scaling an architecture or scaling a business. What does it mean to scale your code? <laughs> I, I named it Scale Your Code for a number of reasons. Because I didn't just want to focus specifically on scaling things like databases or architectures, web servers, and things like that. I also wanted to put focus on scaling yourself as an individual. So this is something that I, I truly believe in, and I always try to do every single day, every time I get out of bed. I just I want to learn more, and I want to improve myself, whether it's the way I handle situations for myself, for my life, or with other people, or whether it has to do with programming. I just want to continually be learning, and to me, that's what scaling is about. Um, I mean, you can look at scaling systems like a database where you, you've hit a wall and you've got an issue. The database just isn't serving traffic anymore. It's returning an error instead. To me, that's kind of the same concept. The database has hit a limit and you need to figure out why it's hit that limit and how to, how to make it scale so that it can handle more. I think individuals like people like you and I, Jeff, are exactly the same way. 
some of us can hit brick walls and some of us don't take that step forward to, to move forward and learn more. Instead, we just settle and we're okay with that. And that's totally fine if that's the type of person you want to be, but that's not the type of person I am. And I know other people out there are the same way. And I really wanted to communicate with those people, to connect with those people, and uh, yeah, just, just see how many people like that were out there. So applying that to that philosophy to your own life, when you were in that situation, you know, you're driving to work, listening to the Mixer G podcast, and uh, were you were you disenfranchised with school? Were you had you hit a scalability limitation in your experiences at school? How do you know all these things, Jeff? You must have done some <laughs> really good research. <laughs> yeah, I just, ah, man, I. I wasn't really happy w- with myself and the way that my life was was leading if if I should be perfectly honest with you guys. I just I kept driving to school and I would just sit in the classroom and I'm like there has to be a better way. There has to be a more efficient way. Watching somebody talk about slideshows on PowerPoint cannot be the best way to learn the best knowledge. And I mean, I know I wasn't going to an Ivy League school or one of the best schools in the world. I get that. But thousands of people are in the same position. And yet I was just, we're, you know, the tuition costs were thousands of dollars per semester. And I just didn't feel like I was getting a thousand or a thousand plus dollar uh, worth of education. And so it was just super frustrating. And I, I didn't really realize this at the time. I thought maybe it would turn into this, but the podcast has really taught me that there are other ways to learn. School is not the only to, only way to learn. To, sorry, to learn. And I know that some people already know that, but I didn't. I thought, you know, everybody goes through school. You go through middle school, high school, and then some people go to college. And that's really the only way to learn. But I was so wrong. There are other ways to learn. You can talk to people. You can learn a lot more by doing your own research if you know where to look for and if you just spend the time to do it. And so that's what I learned through the podcast. And and that's really um, that's really how it all happened. Yeah. We do a lot of shows about this topic, the the um, transition from uh, a single track type of education, you know, co- college, uh, ivory tower, university type stuff into this more modernized state that we're currently in where there's online courses and boot camps. And then, of course, you, you know, you could just be self-taught and teach yourself through the Internet was there some inflection point where these alternate modes of education got good enough, or is it more that there's always been these things that have been that have been perfectly good enough, and you know the the public is just starting to accept it more? I think we're really shifting mentalities as far as that goes because I mean let's just put it this way: some careers have to have that kind of structure. If you're going to be a doctor, you have to go to school for a certain amount of time. It's a lot harder, I think, to actually go online and try to figure out knowledge because, let's face it, a lot of stuff online is just not accurate. It's just people that go on there and, and share their opinion, but nobody's fact-checking them. So if you're going to be a doctor and you're going to rely on this information, you could literally kill someone. Uh, so I think you know it, it really depends on the actual career itself. But I think that in our career, when it comes to software engineering, it's just it's very different. Even if you do it wrong, you're probably not going to kill someone unless you're working on like a robotics arm that, that operates on people or something like that. But if you're just building your own website, you don't have to pay thousands of dollars to learn how to do it. You need the experience. The only way to get experience is to actually do it hands-on. You don't necessarily need someone to guide you through those steps, though it could help. If it's a really good professor, absolutely it could help. But I think that this model of just sitting in class and being limited to one professor in that one classroom is a little bit outdated because we're in a time when you can literally stream to millions of people. And I think that education is, is probably going to have to adapt to this kind of model and mentality if it wants to stay relevant and if it wants to keep charging all these these outlandish prices, in my opinion. I mean, I could be completely off uh, or wrong in this in this aspect, but I just don't see it continuing. I really don't. Yeah. Um, well, I've gotten somewhat lambasted for talking about uh, university larceny in too much detail, so I won't. I won't uh, go on a tirade here. But um, talking more about scale your code and programming resources. I mean, you mentioned this. Uh, you know, this idea that sometimes 
things you read online aren't fact-checked or they're not reliable or but there are programming resources online that are really good what are the programming resources you find yourself using online and how do those inspire you in your work on scale your code a lot of the knowledge i get is actually from books and blog posts i mean there are tremendous resources out there that teach uh kind of like video content or hands-on labs. I actually work for one of those companies. I'm working for linuxacademy.com now. And I think that's a tremendous uh, channel, communication channel to, to learn and to teach. And I didn't really realize that. Before, I kind of had the mentality that a lot of this stuff was available for free online, and it is. But you kind of have to have some some guidance to some degree if you want to take that learning to the next level. I mean, yeah, you could do it by yourself and and learn faster, but sometimes it can really help to have a really good professor teach you that way. So I think that those resources are really good, and some of them are very affordable, which I love. Um, but a lot of it can be learned for free by reading books. In, in fact, one of the books that really inspired me to do the Scaly Code Show was by Steve Corona, and that was Scaling PHP Applications. So I was uh, I was writing PHP code. I was working for a startup that uh, didn't really work out that well. But I didn't understand how performance worked. And so our site would literally sometimes take like 5 to 15 seconds to load, which is ridiculous. And I didn't understand why, which really bothered me. It crawled under my skin. And so I started doing some research, and I found his book. And I just started reading the book, and I just couldn't put it down. I absolutely loved it. I learned so much from it. And that's what got me on this track of just... Communicating, communicating with book authors, asking them their opinion, trying to learn from them. And that just, if you start going in that direction, I really think it starts branching out into different facets. Is that how you say that word? Facets? Yeah. Uh, where uh, you start seeing other communication channels that you can really learn from, other books, other authors. And uh, I think there's a lot of value in these kinds of books and, and blog posts from people, even if sometimes authors make mistakes. So if you have a blog post, that's another thing that can be hard to fact, fact check unless you have a very active community with a lot of comments and people can go in there and say, you know what, this sentence is actually wrong. It should be this. Sometimes you don't have that fact checking. But still, if you can look at all these different kinds of blogs that, or blog posts that talk about the same kind of thing, you can kind of tell whether it's accurate or not because they're all going to say the same thing or they're going to say different things. And then you can fact check that yourself and see whether it's right or not. So I think that's a really good way of, of learning nowadays. A developer might say, I can just find my information, my technical information on Stack Overflow, or I can find these disparate blog posts if I just search Google. What is the value in having a site that is a centralized point of information like Scale Your Code? Well, you said it yourself. It's a central location that kind of spoon feeds you that information. So instead of, of Googling everything, and sometimes you may not even know what to Google for, so say, for example, that you, you, you have an application that's running into scaling issues. You're getting a, a 5xx error from the database that's saying we can't take any more connections. You can copy and paste that into Google, and you can get a very specific answer back or specific answers back. But what if you don't have an error code like that? What if there's just a problem and you can't figure out where it is? Or even before you have that problem, how can you prepare yourself how can you get the knowledge that is going to prepare you for when you do run into an issue? I think that's where something like a podcast like yours or mine or some of these other websites that have all that information in a central location can really be beneficial. Are there other sites that you read on a regular basis that give you the type of information that you're looking for? And other, like, are there other centralized sources that you read? I spend a lot of time teaching Amazon Web Services. So a lot of the stuff I read nowadays is centered around that. I don't really have a whole lot of websites where I just read a lot of general content. Uh, but I think that you have people like the, the CTO of Amazon, and I'm not going to pronounce his name because I'm not even sure if I can pronounce it right. But Werner Vogels. There you go, Werner Vogels. A uh, really smart guy. He's got a great blog where you can really read a lot of details of what pain points they've run into when trying to uh, scale up Amazon Web Services. And he'll really lay those out and even though sometimes they're more abstract, so it's not specific technical details, I think you can learn a lot from that because if you start getting into the technical details, sometimes it, it may not apply to you directly. Um, and sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. But when you have a lot of those general details, or sorry, general overviews of things, then 
I think it can kind of prepare you for when you do run into those issues and you can kind of think back to that blog post and say, hey, he mentioned something about this database issue or this web server issue or a load balancer issue. Like for example, if you're, if you're using the Elastic Load Balancer, if, you're, if you get an instant spike in traffic, like a lot of traffic comes all at once, it's going to have like a, a few minute warm up time. So it might take five minutes for the load balancer to actually warm up. During that five minutes time, it may not serve traffic at all. So users are gonna to go to your site and they're just gonna see a blank page. You might go back to one of those blog posts and remember that. Whereas if you just set up the load balancer like two years ago, you may forget that detail or that information. Uh, so you know, I think that, that staying up to date with some of these websites, especially if it's resources that are specific to what you're working on. So if you're working in a digital ocean environment, try to read on their blog. They have excellent resources that talk about setting up uh, certain environments and software, or you can go through and read their engineers' blogs. A lot of times these companies have brilliant engineers that create their own blogs and that write about their challenges, and you can learn a lot from the infrastructure by doing that, which later down the road will help you with your own systems and your own learning, I think. You mentioned you work at Linux Academy, which offers training on these technologies like Linux and Amazon Web Services. How did you get started with Linux Academy? Thanks to Scully Code. <laughs> so this is actually, uh, this is something that completely blindsided me. I did not expect this at all. I was, uh, this was back in November, and I was looking for sponsors. Because, uh, like I said, I want to keep the content free, but I didn't have any other jobs, so I, I needed to bring a little bit of income in. So I was emailing and calling some sponsors. I emailed Linux Academy. I don't even know how I found about how, found out about them. I just ended up emailing them, and uh, I know the drill. Yeah, they got back to me, and they're like, "Yeah, we'll we'll sponsor the show. Can we jump in a call?" And I'm like, "Yeah, absolutely. You guys are paying me. I'll, I'll spend some time in the call with you." I jump in the call, and uh, Anthony, the the founder and CEO of it's like, "Hey, yo, tell me a little bit about yourself." So I tell him about myself, and he's like, uh, "We're looking for someone exactly like you. We absolutely love your your podcast, your show, what you're doing with it. We'd like to bring you, bring you on the team." So it was actually a, a sponsorship call. I thought I was going to sell them. They ended up selling me. So that, that was a little <laughs> bit interesting. Uh, but and to go a little bit deeper, to give you a better answer to that, going back to the whole education thing, even though I don't want to go back and talk about that too much, uh, but I think that I see that as an alternative. Like, like Skelly Code. Skelly Code is free for everyone to, to learn from. Linux Academy doesn't charge a whole lot. So right now it's $29 a month. That kind of aligns along the same lines of how can you provide mass education that's really good education for an affordable price? And that's what Linux Academy is all about. And going back to the whole classroom thing where you're sitting in one classroom and you've got one teacher, in this case, it's, it's the opposite. You're sitting at your house or in your office and you can watch a video. That video can be streamed to millions of people or thousands of people. So I think that's a very scalable model of teaching. And again, they can fact check us. We make mistakes sometimes at Linux Academy, right? Everybody makes mistakes. But our students, our thousands of students, are not going to let us keep that mistake up there. They're going to go in the community and say, hey, this is crap. This is wrong. And we'll go right away and fix it. That doesn't happen that often, but it does happen, and it's a, a really good way of making sure that we have up-to-date information and factual information. And that's just a, an education model that I really believe in, and that's why I joined Linux Academy. You've been working on courses about Amazon Web Services in your work at Linux Academy, and one of which is the AWS Lambda course. And I find AWS Lambda pretty interesting. A lot of people are talking about it. What is AWS Lambda? It's event-driven code execution. So what does that mean? That means that you can write a function. You don't have to be a system administrator or a, or a database administrator or anything like that. You just write a function, like a Node.js function or a Python function, that does something specific. You upload that function to Lambda, and you tell Lambda, anytime this event happens, I want you to execute this function, and I want you to pass in this specific information to it. So for example, if you're trying to create image thumbnails, Let's say you're using Amazon S3, which is a simple storage service, service, redundant word, but it's a service where you can store objects like images, PDF files, text files, whatever you want. So you upload images to S3. As soon as you do that, Amazon notifies your Lambda function, passing in the information of that image, and your function could create image thumbnails or resize the image however way you want it to. 
Whereas with the traditional server model, what you have to do is you have to spin up web servers. You might have to spin up load balancers. You have to take care of every single step of the way. And you have to make sure that that infrastructure is always online. You basically have to, to babysit that infrastructure. With the Lambda model, it completely removes that. Amazon takes care of scaling for you. They take care of the uptime. You don't have to manage any of that. People talk about serverless architecture associated with this this AWS Lambda thing. I think Google also has a service that's that executes code like this. What is a serverless architecture? Well, it's kind of what I just described, actually, where you don't have to maintain your own servers. So if you really think about setting up a, a Python function that creates thumbnail versions or thumbnail images of, of another uploaded image, you have to, first of all, create some kind of storage that's going to store your images, but you have to have a page where users can upload that image and logic that takes that, that image and uploads it to your servers. Then you have to have something that triggers the event. So something like pulling the, the server or some kind of event listener that sees that new image coming in, then that calls other code that goes to another web server that processes the image that does something else, and et cetera, et cetera. So you have a lot of different points of failure. And if, you, you know, if you've ever done any work with servers, you know that the more servers you have, the more chances that something is going to go wrong. Now, that's not to say that Amazon doesn't use servers. They absolutely use servers. So the whole serverless architecture is kind of, it's kind of like the cloud term. I mean, you know, it's not stored in a cloud. It's actual servers. Serverless architecture actually does use servers, but you're not in charge of them. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So one thing I think about around this topic is like how how is this going to evolve into the future? Like how much of our code will be managed in this way? Uh like how do you see serverless architecture um uh being responded to with adoption? Yeah, that's that's a really good question and I'm not entirely sure. I guess we'll have to wait and see how it works out, but I think a lot of people can benefit from something like this that aren't currently using it. So I think we'll see a lot of adoption for it, especially for developers who just want to have nothing to do with servers. They just want to create some Python code and upload it. They can do that. With that being said, you're still at the mercy of Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud Compute Engine. If they go down, your code goes down. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's not like a silver bullet. You're, you're still going to have to have... Uh, servers, you're still going to have to manage them sometimes, especially with more complex applications. But for certain parts of your applications, you could offload that work to something like Lambda, especially if you're right. if you're a startup and you're just getting started and you want to get a prototype out there as fast as possible, you can leverage the application, uh, the Lambda app, uh, service application, you can leverage that to really get started very quickly. And then if it grows beyond that, which Amazon will say is not possible, but it is possible. If it grows beyond that, then you can switch over to something else when you have more resources or when you have a proven business model. So I think it's just a really good way to get prototypes out there or to offload certain parts of your application that you don't don't necessarily need to spend time on. Does that make sense? Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so the typical application of a Lambda function would be just something that you can, you know, where you want to make a call to a script somewhere and you just want to have that script execute and return your result and you don't really want to have to worry about what that black box is. The Lambda function is just this black box that you throw information at and get a response. Yeah, pretty much. And to give you another example, I use Lambda functions to create uh, EBS snapshots. So EBS volumes are attached to EC2 instances, which stores information. It's basically like logical hard drives, which you can plug in and out of EC2 machines. So let's say I have a database that uses EBS storage. I don't want to lose that information. So I can create a Lambda function that is on a scheduled event. So instead of having something trigger the Lambda function, it's a, it's a time clock. So every five minutes or every hour or every day of the week, Lambda will go and create a snapshot version of my EBS volume and I know for a fact that I have that volume without having to worry about configuring anything else. Try to think about, if you didn't have something like Lambda, how would you create those snapshots? You'd have to create everything by yourself. You'd have to create a cron job. You'd have to have a server that pulls. You'd have to do a lot more work. So why would I waste my time doing that when I can just do it in a couple of minutes with Lambda? See what I mean? It's Sometimes it makes sense, and sometimes it just doesn't make sense. Totally. Totally. 
So as you've been working on this AWS training stuff for Linux Academy, are there any specific aspects of AWS that you found difficult to explain? Oh, yeah, man. Amazon Web Services can be a nightmare sometimes. Um, It's such a massive platform. There are so many different services, which is why something like Linux Academy exists, because you you can go through the documentation and try to read through it, but sometimes it just doesn't make sense, and you have to have somebody else try to explain to it. Or you can spend hours and try to figure it out yourself, which is what I have to do sometimes. And it works. It's, it's possible. Uh, but, I mean, you've got things like DynamoDB, which is a NoSQL managed uh, solutions provided by Amazon. So it's basically just a NoSQL database. But again, you don't have to provision hardware or software or anything like that. It does it for you. But you do have to calculate how much, <clears throat> excuse me, how much provision throughput you want to allocate for your database. So how many reads and writes per second you can have? You got to do a little bit of math for that. You have different, you have global secondary indexes, you have local secondary indexes, you have all these different kinds of indexes. And depending on how you use them, it depends on, it will change the performance you get from DynamoDB. So those things can be really, really uh, detailed and complicated sometimes. Um, yeah, yeah, that's Amazon Web Services for you. It's it's great, and sometimes it's not as great. <laughs> What's your impression of how the cloud infrastructure race is shaping up? Like we have AWS, we have Google Cloud, DigitalOcean, Azure. Do you have any perspective on how this is evolving as a ecosystem? Well, and and I want to throw in another one in there, which is DigitalOcean. They, as far as I know, they're the fastest growing cloud infrastructure provider right now, which is incredible. That's just mind-blowing to me. But that's because, I think, it's because they offer a really simple solution. You can literally just deploy a droplet in 55 seconds, and if you're a developer, that's extremely attractive. Whereas with Amazon Web Services, you can do a lot more. You have a lot more flexibility, a lot more customization, but it's going to take you longer to get started with it. So I think you have all these different platforms that really offers something slightly different. Um, and like I just said, with the DigitalOcean example and the Amazon Web Services example, yeah, they kind of compete, but they also kind of uh, offer different solutions that won't work or that will work for specific individuals or specific companies. Um, I haven't really done a whole lot with Azure yet or uh, Google, uh, the, the Google Cloud Engine, but I definitely want to take a look at that and see how they're moving along and doing things because it really sounds like they're trying to catch up and they're, they're going full steam ahead because uh, they're, they're seeing this as a massive opportunity for the future. And uh, I'm really excited to see how the competition works out because it's going to drive their prices down, which is great for all of us. So I'm really excited about that. I want to see what they come up with. Yeah, it seems to me like there's all these domain-specific things that you would want to do in the cloud that it, it's, it's not necessarily a winner-take-all market. My, my initial impression was like, oh, this is over, AWS wins, you know, winner-take-all. But, uh, you know, after kind of just, you know, interviewing more people and talking more about it and I just kind of understand that, like, this cloud stuff is, is so big and multifaceted that there are just too many opportunities for any single company or two or three or even four companies to to capitalize on. Yeah, I mean um, this is this is a massive market. I mean, see how many companies are using the cloud and it's it's growing every year I think and if you look at the uh, I can't remember the exact number I really wish I did, but Amazon released financial details on on how much uh, money it brought in and I think they still ended up losing money on it because they're expanding so quickly and they just they can't keep up with the demand. Uh, so I wish I could pull that up, and uh, I guess uh, we could do it after the show, and if you want to put it in the footnotes or something like that. But it's a tremendous amount of money that that they're bringing in from this, and, and I think it's growing every year. It's it's really cool to watch. Yeah. So I'd love to talk some about interviewing people, because I could use could always use more understanding of you know how to do interviews how to interview technical people so you've conducted interviews with prominent software engineers like Jeff Atwood and David Heinemeier Hansen and so for my own self-interest I'd love to know more about your inter- interview process how do you prepare for an interview I spend a lot of time doing research and it's it's gone down over time thankfully um, when I first started I literally spent hours upon hours reading these books, like seriously, I would actually finish a book before interviewing someone, which could be hundreds of pages and would take a very long time because it's it can be dry, technical content, you know. Uh, 
so that's what I'll do first. I'll, I'll look for someone that I think could really benefit listeners of Scale Your Code a lot. And at the same time, they could get something really good out of it, like book authors or just someone that likes to spend time on podcasts. And I'll go and I'll send them an email and I'll be like, hey, I really enjoyed your talks here or your book. I read through your book. It's an incredible book. I would love to share this knowledge with people online. Would you want to do an interview? Some people will ignore you. Some people will say yes. The ones that say yes, you then go and do more research on them. So I'll go and spend a few hours looking up at what they've written online, their books, their talks, listening to what they're saying. And I'll just try to think of, okay, if I was listening to my podcast, what would I want to know from this person? So I'm actually thinking about interviewing, just to give you an example, I'm thinking about interviewing someone in MySQL right now. So someone that knows a lot about MySQL, like MySQL performance, the internals of how that works. And I'm trying to think, okay, if I was interested in MySQL, what would I want to know from an expert? What would I pay to know for an expert? And then I try to backtrack from there and, and reverse engineer it, which is, you know, it's pretty difficult. I don't think I get it right all the time. I could probably do a better job of it. But then you kind of have to listen to your audience and see which interviews are more popular, which interviews are less popular, and try to adjust it doing that. So I don't know if you keep a really close eye on your tra on your uh, traffic statistics or anything like that, but that kind of plays a role into how I do things as well, like how, how often it's shared on social media, how many comments it gets, uh, that sort of thing, I think really gives you insight as to what people want from your show. And then I try to reverse engineer and see if I can deliver that content for them. Absolutely. I definitely do the same thing. Have your interpersonal skills changed since you started interviewing people on your podcast? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you can relate to a lot of these, too. I, I just feel more comfortable speaking with people. Uh, man, the first time I sent an email, and this is hilarious, the first email I sent was actually to DHH, or David Heidemeyer Hansen, which I was, man, I almost could not hit, hit the enter button to send a message. I was, like, <laughs> I was like, what if he thinks I'm an idiot? Or what if he's like, dude, you don't have a single episode. Why would I waste my time with you? You know, you have all these internal thoughts that yeah. are holding you back. I did end up sending the, the send button. Within five minutes, he replied back and said, you know what? I've ju just done a lot of podcast episodes. Call me back in, or email me back in the spring and let's see if we yeah. can do it. Or in the fall, I, I guess I, sh I should say. And, uh, and I was like, what? He didn't like blow me off or ignore me or say, you know, what, what are you thinking? Like, why, why would I... Why would I say yes to this? Uh, it's just one of those things where it's really taught me that if you just ask, if, if you just ask the question, you have nothing to lose. And yeah. if people say yes, you have so much to gain. It's just a win-win situation. There's absolutely no loss you can get from just asking a question. Uh, I don't know. Have you, have you felt the same from that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, uh, and I find that there's an almost an inverse relationship between how much effort it takes to get a guest on the show and uh, and how much value uh, I've gotten from it. Like the people who make the best guests tend to be very responsive, very easy to work with, um, and uh, the people who are who don't respond to emails like tend to be not not as great guests a lot of times. Um, so, which, which is so interesting because I actually, I haven't really realized that. I, I guess I should take a closer look at it. I never made the correlation between the two. That's interesting. Because I think that the people who, people who are really thoughtful about how they want to spend their time and, um, and also the people who are building these really successful open source applications they set aside time in their life that is not allocated to some sort of work. They also keep a you know an inbox with you know not tons and tons of emails, or they do their best to do that, and they try to make themselves accessible because outreach is so important. Socialization is so important if you're trying to affect change on the software community. You can't build an open source project on your own, for example. So, uh, you know maybe DHH. Uh, has has really gotten into the habit of understanding that he needs to be communicative and and respond to emails. Um, yeah, that's my experience. That's, that's really interesting. I, I like that a lot. I, I really need to go back and, and kind of look at that because, you know, I, I love each and every single episode I've had, but some of them have just been more impactful to me or I've just connected with the interviewer a lot more. Uh, and I think I think the best interviews I've had so far 
I guess, yeah, like you say, they're, they're more, they just seem more interested in doing it. They're more curious about the process. They're more willing to share. Uh, they're, they don't hold back as much. And I think that's very, a lot of people see that as a danger because if you put something out on the internet, it lives forever. You can never take it back. And so th they think, okay, what if I say this? Like earlier, when we're talking about education, I guarantee you somebody's going to come across this episode and say, oh, this guy's full of crap. He's completely <laughs> wrong. And they're probably right. You know, they might be right from a certain perspective, but I still believe in my own perspective and I'm not afraid to show that. And I think that people who are afraid to show it are kind of holding back. Um, and that's something I've learned because I used to hold back a lot more than I do now. Now I don't care as much if I get attacked for saying something that I believe in, if I truly believe in it. And, and like you say, I, I think those are some of the more, more interesting interviews, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, I, mean, I think we went, we, you know, uh, you and I grew up in this Facebook time and there was this, there was this span of time uh, where I think that the common narrative was you have to be extremely careful about what you publish on social media. Um, you have to be extremely careful because an employer can always dredge up this information about you. And and I think over time I've just realized like that's a terrible philosophy because that's basically saying you should oppress yourself. I mean, the, obviously there are some forms of social etiquette that are important to follow, and you know you're never going to win somebody over if you just completely uh, ignore etiquette because they may just you know turn you off from the beginning. Um, but, uh, but, but I, I don't agree with, with the idea that, you know, we should, we should restrain ourselves for fear of not getting a, a job or, or something. But then again, who am I to say I'm a, I'm a white male software engineer with plenty of, uh, uh, plenty of capped, uh, downside risk to saying something stupid. Um, I also have so much, so much stuff that I've said that I, I feel like if you say something dumb, you can always pave over it with other things in the future. That's like the Donald Trump strategy. <laughs> uh, I think people are really for, forgive, forgiveful, forgiving, forgive, forgive, forgiving. Yeah, yeah. I, I try to say forgetful, forgive. Combine the two words. Very forgiving. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. They, if you do something they don't like, I mean, I guess, I guess it really depends. Um, yeah, there, there are all the, there are these there are these counter arguments. You know, these cases like Justine Sacco. I don't know if you remember who she is. This this woman who who uh, she was getting on a plane to Africa and she tweeted out right before her plane left that uh, she was she's like I'm going to Africa and then said something really offensive like I hope I don't get AIDS or something and and uh, by the time her plane landed she had lost her job. And she's, and as far as I know, she still has not gotten a job. Um, I think she, cause I think she was like a marketing manager, a social media manager or something for the company she worked for. So it's just like, yeah, that's terrible. And I guess, yeah, that is the counter argument that somebody could say to everything we just said, where you say one tweet and you lose your job. I like the, yeah. the Gmail, the whole Gmail thing with the drop the mic. Did you, did you hear about that just recently for April fools? What was the controversy around that? So you know how they have a send button, the regular send button? I saw it. I saw the April Fool's thing. Okay. Well, they added, just for anybody who, who missed it, they added uh, uh, April Fool's where right next to the send button, there was a drop the mic button, which basically sent a gif of this cartoonish character dropping the mic and basically saying, I'm done with this conversation. And then you never receive the replies to those emails anymore. And some people hit that button accidentally sending it to their bosses, and apparently they lost their jobs over it. I mean, of course. Oh, my God. You know, and you have to be careful what you believe in on the Internet nowadays. That could be the lie as well. But apparently that's what happened. People lost their jobs or they didn't get the information they were supposed to get. And so they weren't able to complete their jobs on time or whatever. And I think that's another thing where, I mean, yeah, you, you still do have to be careful about what you do. And, and sometimes you'll just make big, big mistakes. But I think if you own up to it, and just try to explain, you know what, I this was a stupid thing. I'm sorry. I take it back. I apologize. I promise to be very careful next time. I think people are more willing to forgive you. Now, if you keep doing it and you're like, no, I'm right. Uh, the, you know, I, I didn't do anything wrong. I think they're not as forgiving. And I think that's another culture shift in nowadays where you just have to be humble. You just have to be like, you know what, we make mistakes. I'm sorry. This was really stupid. I'll do better. I'll, I'll promise to do better next time. That's That's the way I look at it anyway.
Yeah, it is interesting. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody, like a normal conversation, and they say, uh, you know, it really feels like I'm in a podcast right now? Um, as in, like, t- telling you that? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I've had conversations with people where they're like, Jesus, stop asking questions. Like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I ask, I ask a lot of questions sometimes, yeah, and, and like, are you interviewing me here? <laughs> right. That's the, that's, I think that's the curiosity, which I think you have to have in order to start a podcast. Otherwise, you're just going to sit there and be like, uh, yeah, how's the weather? <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, do you think that there's this uh, – you know, I feel like there is this uh, pervasive notion that that many software developers or engineers in general are these this antisocial cadre of people, um, and I don't find that to be true in reality. Like, uh, do you think that stereotype is changing at all? I, I don't know about the stereotype. Uh, I, I mean, I see both both sides of the coin. Like sometimes when I interview someone, they just I've I've had people who I just uh I had a hard time really getting through to. They mm-hmm. just they seemed like they were just there just to get it done and move forward. Uh I'm not, you know, I'm not gonna name any names or anything like that, but there have been a few of those. And then you have other people like uh Jeff Atwood, Steve Corona, Tim Sabat from CodePen, uh, even DHH, DH, excuse me, DHH, who just uh they're not like that at all. You know, and, and I think it is a stereotype. I don't think we're all like that. And, you know, I, I try to stay away from stereotypes generally because I, I don't really believe in them in the first place. But yeah, I think there's, you have both types of people. Uh, and and kind of go on, going off on a tangent that's somewhat relevant, when I had Jeff Atwood on the show, he, he really wanted to drive home the point that he's worked with a lot of brilliant programmers, but they were kind of limited in their careers because they did not work on their communication and human skills. So, you know, knowing how to communicate your, your selling points. So if you go to a job interview, you can't just say, or I guess sometimes you can, but generally you don't want to just show up and be like, yeah, I'm really good at Node.js. Uh, I can write for loops. I can do all this stuff. You really want to explain the fact that you're going to make the business more money. You're going to make them more efficient, which is going to make more money. You're going to be an asset to them because in the end, you're going to drive the bottom line. And that's really what he was explaining, where a lot of people in, in our industry don't know how to do that because they think all they have to do is program. But it, it, that's not the case. Unless you just, you're fine with programming 24-7, that's absolutely not the case. You have to have people skills. You have to, to speak out. You have to be more human, I guess. Um, well, I, I guess that's actually, I should take that back. It's not necessarily being more human. It's just, like, so, some people aren't meant to do that, and that's totally fine. Um, yeah. You know, that's fine. Some people just don't want to be that way. Some people do want to program. That doesn't mean they're less human. Uh, the way I put it kind of sounded dry there, but uh, that's totally fine. That's just the way they want to be. That's not the way I want to be, but that does, who am I to say that they're not, that they're less human or whatever? Um, they're just, they're different people and they have different aspirations. Uh, so I think we have both. We have both types of people. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I think management is an idea that, factors into this conversation here because if you want to scale your influence on software projects eventually you have to start thinking in terms of how do i work with people rather than how do i work with modules because people can work with multiple modules so you know you 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 scale your influence that way and uh learning to interface with people is just is technical people is like a higher level of abstraction from learning to interface with pieces of code of course, there is, you know, a certain, you know, speaking of other stereotypes or things, uh, I think there's an allergy to to moving towards management, or like it's it's sort of perceived as so, as negative by some engineers if if you have desires to go into management, even though people in management roles have a wider scope, they have more influence, they have more complexity to deal with. So yeah, well, I'm, I'm actually going to throw you a curveball there because I don't think that's necessarily the case. In fact, I was interviewing John Cowie from Etsy just a few weeks back and they take a very different approach to that whole concept of you have to be in management to kind of get forward in your career. 
Some engineers just don't give a crap about management, and that's okay. They're better at doing their own thing on the side without having to managing people. And according to what John Cowie was telling me, other things I've read about Etsy, they provide that opportunity. You don't have to advance. You don't. I'm sorry. You don't have to go in management to advance forward in Etsy. If you just want to focus on the systems themselves and not on managing people, you can still advance forward as a career inside of Etsy. And I think that's. I think that's tremendous. I think that's amazing. I don't think you should have to go into management to advance forward in your career because it's not for everyone. And I was reading an article, and I forget who wrote it or who it was on Medium. That was, and she was, she went into management and she liked it, and she's trying to share what what she had learned. And she was like, the organizations that force you to go into management to move forward in your career create terrible managers mm. because then they feel forced to do it. They hate it. They're not good with people. They're not good at management, but they feel like they need to do it. So they still do the management role and they're horrible managers. And that just, I don't know, that just hit it home for me. And I'm like, that makes a lot of sense. How can we as, you know, for, for business owners or for managers, how can we promote that kind of environment where if you're not a manager, you can still move forward in life as a career or in your career, I mean. Ah, That's fascinating. Hmm. Um, So... My understanding is you work remote. Is that correct? I, I work remotely right now. I'm going to move in uh, late May, though. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I, I know the Etsy interview you did recently. That was that was with a remote engineer, and uh, I think, and and also the HashiCorp interview you did recently was also remote. So uh, it's interesting. What do you think of the trend towards remote work? I love it. I think it's fantastic. Uh, the the reason I and why did it take so long? Like, what did we have some technological breakthrough recently that allowed us to actually do it? You know, obviously it wasn't working at Yahoo. Uh, there are certain contexts where it, where it just has historically not worked. But did we have a technological breakthrough? I, I don't think so, and I can't be entirely sure. But I think it again, it's a shift in mentality, and it depends on the business owner or the the management as to how they communicate with their team. So if, I mean, I'm not going to lie, working remotely is extremely challenging because the communication is much harder. How do you stay in touch? How do you make sure your employees are doing the work that they say they are? How do you make sure they're hitting, hitting their goals and not just sitting at home watching Netflix? Um, for some people, um, for example, Gary Vaynerchuk, I don't know if you know who he is. He's a yeah. brilliant marketing guy. He owns uh, VaynerMedia, which is a marketing agency. He said he will never, ever build a remote-only workforce because he has to have people in front of him. He has to have one-on-ones in person. He has to to see their body language. He has to feel how they're feeling that day. And if it feels off, he wants to talk to them and be like, hey, what's going on? Why is there a problem today? Uh, You know, something going on at home? Can I help you with your job or whatever? Some people just have to have that face-to-face, and that's totally fine. But then you have other people who don't necessarily need that. Like, I don't necessarily need it. John Cowie doesn't need it. Seth Vargo from HashiCorp doesn't need it. And uh, you have an organization like HashiCorp that has practically everyone working remotely, and that works 100% for them. But for someone like Gary Vaynerchuk, that would not work. That'd probably crumble the entire organization, and it just would fail. So you just have, I think you have different people with different mentalities and different approaches to how they manage I don't think it's necessarily just the infrastructure, although I think that does play a role as well. Like, I mean, I don't know, uh, a couple or a few years ago, we really couldn't have multi-chat calls, especially across the world, that just wouldn't lag, right? You'd have really right. choppy, the sound would be bad, you'd have yeah. drop connections. I mean, when you think about it, that's really not that far ago. Uh, you know, we still had yeah. dial-up, like what? What? Uh, 16 years ago, or even less than that, maybe 15, 14 years ago, I think I was still using dial-up and you couldn't really have that kind of thing. So I do think the infrastructure also plays a pretty big role in it, to be honest with you. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, uh, you know, I want to start to wrap up. Um, what's what's in your future? Like, what are your goals and uh, I guess with Scale Your Code and, and more broadly? I want to keep doing this. I, I've just found a, a big passion for meeting people like you, Jeff, and and other people in the industry that just are really passionate. I mean, obviously you're doing this because you love it and other people are doing what they're doing because they love it too. And I want to surround myself with people like that 
And thanks to this amazing infrastructure that's getting better and better over time, we can do that on a, a bigger scale than I think we've ever been able to do it before. And I really want to leverage that as much as possible. I, I want to not only bring a lot of value to, to Scully Code and people who listen to Scully Code and students at Linux Academy and other professors and the team at Linux Academy, but I also want to build a personal brand where people can just look at my work and they, they can just be inspired by that eventually. So, um, you know, I don't feel like I'm there yet or I won't be there anytime soon, but I want to live, leave a legacy where I truly helped people the way that other people helped me. I wouldn't be here without everybody's support, like my family support and other people who have contributed to open source, written these books, taught me, even if they didn't do it directly. I want to do the exact same thing. I want to help people move their career forward. Uh, yeah, that, that's that's really what I want to do. I want to talk. I want to speak. I want to write awesome software. I want to teach people. I just want to share what I know and I want to keep learning more so I can share more and more. What about you? What do you, what do you see yourself doing in the future? Yeah, I can totally relate to all that. Um, I think I, I would want to move, I want to move my emphasis towards building software at some point, but I think of this podcast, this media organization that I'm contributing to as kind of finishing school or graduate school towards building software. Um, cause yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I want to build some software, <laughs> you know, as, as satisfactory as it is to launch podcast episodes, I think launching complex software pro- projects is, has been more, um, gratifying for me. Uh, yeah. But both, both are awesome. Yeah, I think, you know, they both have their different pros and cons, that's for sure. But yeah. I think uh, I agree with that. I like doing both. It's fun. Yeah. Okay, well, Christoph, thanks for coming on the show. This has been a super interesting conversation. I'm a big fan of Scalier Code. There needs to be more software podcasts, more software resources that uh, have the type of uh, focus and highly technical yet compelling content so thanks for coming on the show and thanks for all your great work. 